What we'd like to do tonight is to study a case of non-conversion to Jesus Christ. Uh, so often we hear the lessons about how Paul was converted, Lydia, Ethiopian eunuch, and the others. And it's very profitable to study every one of those. So I think there's also some lessons that we can gain as we look to Felix and his wife, Drusilla. And the part that God had to play in bringing the preacher of the gospel into their midst and into their hearing of the gospel. So we're going to study, or as we study the cases of conversion to Jesus we can see how God's providence, at least partly, has been at work and how he's brought the two together, those who need to hear the gospel, who need to obey the gospel, and those who have the gospel to preach. But we can also see how God's providence has also worked in those who, having heard the gospel, still refuse it, like Felix or Agrippa or Festus. We believe that God brought the same kind of influence, maybe a little bit different way, but still as much influence in their lives for salvation, but that it just resulted in failure. Not that God failed, not that the gospel's a failure, but every individual must make his own choice. Now let's consider Felix, the man, let me just kind of introduce him in a general way first. Felix was governor from uh, 53 down to 60. For seven years, he was the governor over the province of Judea. Judea or Judea, or whatever you want to call it. Not the whole Galilee and all the rest. We first meet him in Acts chapter 23. But history tells us that he was first a slave. Now I say first, when he's first introduced in history, he was a slave. Uh, he was a slave in the household of the mother of the emperor, Claudius Caesar. And uh, he served in this environment that was very worldly, heathen in fact. So we don't know whether he was born a slave or in some campaign he was reduced to slavery because his side lost. The mistress that he served was of the household uh, Agrippa, Agrippina, I'll say it right. And Agrippina was the fourth wife of Claudius Caesar. He was a Roman emperor from 41 to 53. And he was uh, a slave. Now the woman was a heathen woman her court was heathen. All of the associates were heathen. And the vices about the court were wanton and they were licentious. And so Felix had very little chance to cultivate a good culture or a good uh, character. He had been a favorite of Claudius. And when Claudius was made the, the, uh, the emperor, well, he took him out of slavery and he made him the governor of the province of Judea. He was a governor for a short time when he met Drusilla, his third wife. Now, Drusilla was a young, beautiful woman. She was already married. She was the wife of Aces, 
who was a king of a very small little kingdom just northeast of Palestine, between Palestine and the, the desert. She was uh, the daughter, and we're told the oldest daughter, of Agrippa II, Agrippa I, excuse me. Agrippa I we read about in Acts chapter 12. He's the one that made the great uh, oratory, uh, and everybody said, you know, this is God speaking. And he took all the credit, and God sent worms, and he died in the year 44. But this is his daughter, Drusilla, was the daughter of that man. She, being then a Herod, came with bad blood. Felix was uh, a man of bad blood. You know what I mean by that expression, the background. And so was Drusilla, his wife. But seeing this woman and becoming enamored with her, Felix used a sorcerer to win her over, to entice her away from her husband. She, like all the rest of the Herods, were, was filled with passions. She loved power. She loved luxuries. And so she was persuaded to abandon her humble husband for Governor Felix who had a higher position. So this transaction alone tells us what kind of a man Felix was. The character of his administration is seen when we learn that the reason why he kept Paul in prison. Paul was innocent, as we all know, and Felix learned but would not admit and so he kept Paul in prison for two years until he was deposed, but he's still in prison. When he found that he was innocent, he should have dismissed him, but he didn't. And as we noticed later, he kept him in because he wanted a bribe. Kept him there for two years. So this is a character whose attempted conversion to Christ we want to consider. And we notice this great con excuse me, great contrast between Felix and, say, the Ethiopian eunuch. When we first meet the eunuch, what's he doing? Well, he'd been, he'd been to Jerusalem, he'd been there to worship, and he's reading the scriptures as he's going home. That doesn't sound like Felix, does it? There's a great contrast between Felix and Cornelius. Cornelius was a Roman soldier, described as very devout. He feared God with all of his family. He prayed to God always. He gave much alms. So there's quite a difference between their characters. And Lydia, another converted person. She was a Gentile, but she had taken up the role with the Jewish women. And even though the Sabbath day was a day of work, business for her, she closed down. And she recognized it as a day of prayer with these other spiritual folks. So in contrast to all of these, here is a man thoroughly corrupt in private life and in the administration of his government. Under ordinary circumstances, we'd say there's little hope for salvation of such a man. Will this man, Felix, ever want to worship God? Well, Here's one way we can approach that question. Those in high positions of authority not often are church-going people. 
Charles Spurgeon was perhaps one of the most famous preachers back in the 19th century when Queen Victoria was the queen over Great Britain. You know, the sun never set on that empire. But the queen, nor any of her household, ever went to London. They lived in London. I mean, went to where Spurgeon preached. And it would appear they just were not interested. And we find not just Queen Victoria, but other queens and kings and presidents, often choosing men to come and preach to them, but who would preach messages that were pleasing to them. But we're thinking about Felix being of this sort of person. So we ask this question. Uh, men with great authority seldom go where their sins by, might be denounced. And of course, Felix, with all the corruption in which he lived, would not be expected to go where he might hear an apostle or an evangelist preach the gospel. So how poor the opportunity for Felix to, be, to have a fair chance for his salvation. But God would not leave Felix without excuse. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 17 and 18, Ye shall be brought before governors, he's talking to his disciples, and kings and councils for my name's sake, for a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Well, that happened to Paul, did it not? Peter, John, and many others that you can think of, and others that are not named in the Bible. It was a part of the divine purpose, divine purpose, to allow those faithful men to be brought before such rulers in order that they might have the opportunity to present the story of Jesus Christ, which otherwise these rulers would not, never hear. And it's just as reasonable to believe that God went to work providentially for Felix's salvation as he did in the case of others. He did not send uh, an angel telling him to call for a preacher like he did with Cornelius. God did not send an angel to the preacher like Philip directing him to the chariot where the Ethiopian eunuch was riding. Neither did God appear to him like he did to Saul. But, as in the case of Lydia, God in a strange and mysterious way guided the footsteps of the Apostle Paul until he was brought face to face with this ungodly man we know as Governor Felix. Now, while Felix was at Caesarea, that's where he had his palace, that's where he carried on most of his business, managing the affairs of the government, Paul was in Jerusalem. He had just come back after his, uh, from his third missionary journey. He had brought back funds. He had had a conversation with the, uh, the leaders. And then he had been accused by the people of having gone into the temple and taken with him a Gentile, like Trophimus. Now that was wrong. And there wasn't anything for, wrong for Paul to go into the temple. He was a Jew. And they didn't bring a charge against him for that. It was taking a Gentile, they thought. Because the Bible says they saw Trophimus and Paul together in the city 
and they had it in for Paul. And so they made a false accusation against him. Well, the people, you know, the great mob sprang on Paul. And he was just rescued by the Roman soldiers from the hands of these Jews, his enemies. And they rescued him, brought him to Claudius Lysias. But he didn't know what had caused all the uproar. And some said one thing and some said another. Then Paul said, uh, would you give me an opportunity to speak to the people? And I'm sure the captain was thinking, well, I don't know why, what's caused all this problem. Maybe if I give him the opportunity, I can hear what the problem was. And so he let Paul preach. But he was also surprised when he heard him preaching. He wasn't trying to vindicate himself. He was preaching a gospel sermon. He was trying to preach salvation to that mob of unbelieving Jews. And so Paul had asked before that, is it lawful? For thee to scourge a Roman citizen? Well, the word got from that soldier who had the responsibility to, to try to beat him and get the confession out of him to, to go to the captain. And when the captain heard that, well, he you know, pushed him back and said, we're not going to flog this man. He said, uh, how did you get your Roman citizenship to Paul? He said, with a high price, I bought mine. Paul said, well, I was... Uh, I was Roman born. And that's why I'm a citizen. And so the next day, he puts him in prison, protects him from the, the mob. The next day, Paul's nephew has heard about 40 men who, who took a vow. And their vow was that they were not going to eat or drink until Paul was put to prison. I mean, put to death. Well, he comes secretly to the prison, tells Paul... Paul sends the nephew to the, the chief captain and he tells him what he'd heard. And immediately the captain takes steps. He gets 472 men together. Soldiers, uh, horsemen, spearmen, and a couple of uh, centurions. And at night, third hour of the night, nine o'clock at night, they secretly take Paul out and take him over to Caesarea. And of course at Caesarea he's bringing him to Felix. And he writes a letter to Felix telling him he doesn't really know what the problem was. But I'll send over those who have brought these accusations against him. And so they take Paul safely at night and he meets Felix and he's put in prison. Herod's palace there to be kept safe. And the accusers come against him, but he still doesn't know what's wrong. There's nothing really brought against him that would charge him with being guilty enough to be put in prison or certainly not to be put to death. And so Felix had a responsibility as being the governor to let him go free. But he didn't. Felix's duty was to free. But if he had freed Paul, Paul would never have had an opportunity to preach to him and to his wife or to appeal to Caesar and to go to Rome and preach the gospel there. We're looking at the providence of God. It wasn't right for Paul to be in prison. And if he had been released, he'd gone somewhere preaching. We don't know where, but we know Paul. But God providentially kept him there and sent him somewhere else and gave him an opportunity to preach to Felix and Drusilla. Why didn't 
Felix free him? I mean, from his point of view, why didn't he? Well, I think it's because of a remark Paul made when he was answering those who came to accuse him. Recorded in Acts 24, verse 17, Paul said, now, he's telling why he was in Jerusalem. He said, now, after some years, I came to bring alms to my nation and offerings. Well, when he heard that, bringing alms and offerings to my nation, something clicked in Felix's mind. He's talking about money here. That caught the ear of Felix. And must have thought up of something about now, maybe here's a way of getting some money. A large quantity of money. Evidently, Paul has that power. He has the resources. He knows the people who has it. And so, he just kept him in prison until he was released from his duties. And Paul was still there. Well, our question is, what were the results of Paul's preaching to Felix? After some days, Felix sent orders to Paul, said, uh, bring him here, I want to hear him. To hear him concerning the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And we wonder again, why would a man of this character, we're talking about Felix now, care to hear about the faith, which is the gospel. The land of Judea and other lands were ringing with the message of faith in Jesus Christ. And Felix needed to be in, on the know. And I would think that one of the reasons why was curiosity. Felix wanted to know what was going on in the world. There are many men in our day, right here in Byron, right in Georgia, right in the United States and wherever, who do not care a snap of the finger, as we say, about the gospel, and they will not go and hear a message. But a lot of them will go to hear a speaker. Not the message. When we were living in France, Billy Graham uh, had a campaign in, in Paris. Now, some folks think that uh, France is 96% uh, Catholic, but it's 50% unbelievers, and that's been shown to be sold by... In fact, one time President Eisenhower got into some problems because he made that statement. He had been in service over that way, and he said, 50% of the Frenchmen are they're atheists. Well, that didn't set too well with the Frenchmen, at least those who believed in God, but uh, he was later proven to be right. So here was Billy Graham coming to preach, and, he was, and people wanted to hear it. Not the message. And uh, they even sat there and listened to an interpreter. He was able to attract thousands. Well, what about Felix? What's causing all this commotion throughout the land? And Felix wanted to know, so he calls Paul to preach. One reason, not the only reason. So Paul is there before an audience of two. I mean, he didn't have as many as we have tonight. This was Felix and Drusilla. And re we remember what kind of persons these two are, were. Paul has a choice of subjects. He's going to preach about the faith of the gospel. Well, the faith and the gospel is the same thing. He's talking about the new covenant. And he, take it, he can take any part of the whole range of the gospel and preach on it. Well, he makes a three-point sermon outline. He makes his introduction, and he preaches about righteousness, 
self-control, or your version may say temperance, and then the judgment to come, the day of the judgment. Judgment. But we wonder about that. Preacher on righteousness to such a man and to such a woman, was that a good choice? Preaching to them on self-control about the judgment? Phoenix might... Uh, have considered this subject a personal reflection on himself and on his wife, in fact, maybe as an insult to her as a lady. But somehow or other, the apostles or the preachers or the prophets of Judea always address themselves to their audiences. They knew what they needed to hear. They knew what kind of lives they were living. They never stood before an audience and spake of the sins of somebody somewhere else. And if they spoke of sins, they spoke about the sins of their audience. So when Paul spoke of righteousness, he had to draw a contrast between what he set forth and from God's word and their lives. And that's quite a contrast. We spoke of self-control or temperance. He condemned them at every word. And from there he moved to the day when God will judge the world in righteousness. When God's going to condemn every wicked person. And save those that have been redeemed by the blood of Christ. That's a fearful picture. And it must have been so that Paul painted for Drusilla and for Felix. Now, preachers must preach on the judgment we, may, we need to preach on hell we need to preach on God's judgment that's not a popular subject in fact some people fear that that will cause some people to obey the gospel be baptized by having been scared into the kingdom of heaven well all right Certainly the Bible teaches that fear is a part of the appeal, not the major one, not the only one. Remember Jesus said in, in Matthew 10, 28, he said, Be not afraid of them who can kill the body and cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell, and that's God. Jesus said, Now you need to fear God. And isn't that what Paul said? I believe Paul's one that wrote Hebrews 10, 31. Where he says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You think about it. And he just, in, the, in that paragraph before, spoke about those who turn their backs upon the only, only sacrifice that Jesus provides. He says, there's not another sacrifice you're going to turn your back on his. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then in chapter 12 and verse 29, he says, our God is a consuming fire. Well, I believe if we're going to preach scripturally, it's all right to say some things like that. Men must be made to realize what awaits them. But what was the effect of Paul's preaching on righteousness, self-control, and the right and the day of judgment to Felix and Drusilla? Did it throw Felix into a rage? Did he order Paul back into his prison cell in a fit of rage and resentment? No. In fact, to the credit, 
to the credit of Felix, when Paul reasoned of righteousness and temperance and of the, the judgment to come, Felix was terrified. Your version says, Felix, maybe your version does, says he, he trembled. Well, they go together, don't they? I mean, if you're terrified, you're going to tremble. Did, did you ever tremble? I mean, out of fear? Well, here's a, a grown man listening to the gospel and comparing his life with that and what God's promised, and he believes it. He was terrified. That was the effect upon Felix when he heard Paul speak. When his guilty soul ran back over the course of his life, he saw all of his sins and all of his crimes that he thought of, and then he thought about the judgment. And God condemning him to his fate that he deserved, Felix trembled. Any man who could be brought face to face with his sins and eternal judgment would tremble too. Because men hate to be terrified. They do not think of such things. I mean, that's why people are not filled up this building. They don't want to hear anything about that subject. I'm talking about a lot of folks. Maybe the majority of people. And yet, we, and I should say especially preachers, are to bring this warning of God or we may go into perdition. Let me give you one scripture reading you might want to read with me. Turn back to Ezekiel chapter 3. God told Ezekiel that he was his watchman, his guard, you might say. He needed to be there and tell the righteous how to live and to tell the evil how they, they need to live. Let's start in verse 17 and read through 21. Ezekiel three seventeen. God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, I have made thee a watchman unto the house of Israel. Therefore, hear the words of my mouth and give them warning from me, the them of the house of Israel. Verse 18. When I say unto the wicked... Thou shalt surely die, and thou givest him not warning, and speaketh not to warn the wicked from his wicked way, to save his life. The same wicked man shall die in his iniquity, but his blood will I require at thy hand. Yet if thou warn the wicked, and he turn not from his wickedness, nor from his wicked way, he shall die in his iniquity, but thou hast delivered thy soul. Verse 20. Again, when a righteous man doth turn from his righteousness and commit iniquity, and I lay a stumbling block before him, he shall die. I'm talking about the righteous right now. Because thou hast not given him warning, he shall die in his sin. And his righteous deeds which he hath done shall not be remembered. Won't do him a bit of good. Not be remembered, but his blood will I require at thy hand. Nevertheless, if thou warn the righteous man that the righteous sin not, and he doth not sin, he shall surely live. Because he took warning, and thou hast delivered thy soul. <clears throat> so, we have a responsibility to warn the righteous, to keep righteous. We have a responsibility to warn the, the wicked to change and to become righteous. 
So Felix was terrified. And how like the condition of people on the day of Pentecost? Let's notice this comparison. Remember how Peter bore down, we have his sermon recorded in Acts 2, on the story of Jesus, quoting Old Testament prophets, telling about what Jesus had done. So he bore down on their souls and their consciences. Finally, in Acts 2 and verse 36, Peter says, Now let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom ye crucified. And such was the effect on their consciences that they cried out, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Now that was the effect of the preaching of Peter on those people. Now Felix was brought to the very same point of feeling but they, on the day of Pentecost, responded differently than Felix. They asked, what shall we do? Felix was terrified, but instead of crying out, what shall I do? He said, Paul, you go thy way for this time, and when I have a convenient season, I'll call thee unto me. In other words, you don't call me, I'll call you. You know how that goes. That meant, Paul, I see the direction." To which your speech would carry me. But it's not convenient for me to do that today. Not for Felix. When he thought of this guilty woman at his side, Drusilla. Whom he had seduced from her husband. And to go Paul's way, as Paul was encouraging him to do. He would have to leave her behind. Cast her off. It was not convenient. And it wasn't. It was exceedingly inconvenient to get rid of Drusilla. But that's not the point. How often today men have gotten themselves so tied up that it's not convenient to do something about it. Even when their consciences tell them that they ought to leave, I mean to serve the Lord. But what do they say? They say like Paul, Paul, well you're going to have to wait for a convenient season. Well, what is a convenient season? A season when you can do a thing as easily as not. When a friend asks you to do something, if it's convenient, will you answer, oh yeah, it's convenient, no trouble at all. Well, do you think a convenient season ever comes to a man living in sin? Ever. A convenient season to repent of sins? A person must put himself to a great inconvenience when he makes the change in his life. You cannot repent without inconvenience. And I think we all know, understand that. A person cannot get out of sin as easily as sitting down when you get tired. Oh, I'm tired. I think I'll sit down. But you can't get out of sin like that. If a person repents, he will always find that he must do it at a sacrifice with struggle, with pain, and with trouble. Did the convenient season ever come to Felix? Paul, when I have a convenient season, I'll call you. But did he ever call him? Did it ever come? Well, there were two years that Paul was in prison, Felix was right there. Now the Bible does say he hurt him quite often. But the reason why, we're told, is that he wanted that 
bribe offered to him. Paul lingered in prison, but the convenient season did, never, did not ever come to Felix. So after two years, Felix was banished. Rome banished him. He was the governor of Judea, but he did such a poor job, they said, come on back. When he got back to Rome, a Jewish delegation brought charges against him. And he had been put to death had it not been for his brother, uh, Pallas, not Dallas, but Pallas, who was a friend of Nero, and Nero at that time was uh, the emperor. But he was banished. He was exiled to Gaul. Today we call it France. Disgraced. There to die. The convenient season never came for Felix, even when he was in such down straits as that. Once face to face with the apostle, heard him preach the gospel until he was even terrified, but because it was not convenient to turn to the Lord, he would not do it. And we know what the results the Bible teaches are. He would go to hell. How many have done the same from that day to this? Most of the men who live here in Byron, for example, have heard of Jesus Christ. They've heard of the cross. They've heard of the church. They've heard of the Bible, of repentance, of baptism, and, and heaven and hell, and on and on. And they've been maybe terrified with the prospects of going to hell. Maybe a few of them but have done precisely the same thing that Felix did and are in the same way as he was and is in regard to perdition. So our question at the end of such a lesson on the non-conversion of Felix is, whose example would you follow? And I like to think that all of us here are following the example, not of Felix, but the example of Paul. Paul was on the road to Damascus when the Lord appeared to him. When he, he got the faith that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, he, he was mistaken all along. Now, it wasn't convenient for Paul to be converted to the Lord. He was a leader in persecuting the church. He had the authority of the chief priest to go to Damascus, and he had been to other foreign cities in the very same process. And now when he comes face to face with the Lord and he knows he's been mistaken... What's he going to do? Well, we know what he did. It wasn't convenient, though. And you know the rest of his life was not a convenient life because he was always at odds with those Jewish leaders who did not accept Jesus Christ. Who would you follow? Who should we follow? Paul, who overcame all of the inconveniences and the sacrifices and gave his life to Christ and obeyed the gospel? Or Felix? who did never find a convenient season? Well, the answer is obvious. We're going to sing a song of invitation. If there's anyone who needs to respond to the Lord, then could we encourage you to do that now as we stand and sing?